Contracting for the Climate, Sustainability and Responsibility. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. This morning, we are joined by Tiong Tech Wee, the co-head of sustainability and responsible business practice and a partner in the commercial and corporate disputes practice at the Wong Partnership in Singapore. His main areas of practice are in multi-jurisdictional, complex, high-value commercial and corporate disputes. Techwe has represented and acted for global private, public and state-owned clients from various jurisdictions, such as Singapore, Malaysia, India, Japan, in the Singapore High Court and in international arbitrations under the rules of major arbitral institutions and in ad hoc arbitrations, Techwee has also advised and acted for both private investors and state parties in investment treaty arbitrations. So Techwee is perfectly placed to discuss today's episode, which is Contracting for the Climate, Sustainability and Responsibility. Good morning. Hi, Camilla. Thanks for having me. Hi, Rube. Hi. I'd like to start by asking what trends are you seeing in climate-related litigation in Singapore and more generally in Asia? I think the trends can broadly be divided into two buckets. The first would be what all of us know as strategic mitigation, which often has a public interest element. And the purpose of the litigation is often to drive and increase awareness of climate-related issues and risks that are affecting our lives as citizens of the earth, basically. And a lot of this strategic litigation is often driven by non-governmental organizations or non-profits who manage to find a cause of action or manage to find an issue and galvanize the necessary plaintiffs to bring an action against a government or a government state agency that has enacted certain policies or not affecting their lives. So that's one bucket that we're seeing a trend in. So to give more concrete examples, recently, two most recent examples are a suit in Indonesia brought by a group known as Indonesian Youths. And the claim is based on a claim that there has been a violation of the human rights of this particular group of youths to life and liberty because of the Indonesian government's failure to take action to minimize climate risks. The second example is the case of Dohyun Kim in South Korea, where likewise a group of South Korean high school students have filed a complaint in the South Korean Constitutional Court against the Korean government alleging that the nation's climate change law violates their fundamental rights, including the right to life and a clean environment. So that's the first bucket of trends that we see. The second bucket of trends relates to private litigation and more specifically arbitration action, where you see claims being brought on the back of M&A transactions that are either related to climate projects, green projects, renewable energy facilities and the like, or for breaches of ESG-related representations and warranties within the contract. Arbitration, as you know, Camilla, is entirely confidential. So a lot of that is actually happening out of the public eye, and it's difficult to ascertain with certainty how much of that is going on or how much of that or the growth and the trends in that space, really. But certainly, anecdotally at least, we do see an increasing trend investigation or arbitration within that space as well. Really interesting to hear about the trends in Asia and also the claims that are being brought. And in many ways, I think the way they're not dissimilar to some of the claims 
that are being brought in the UK and Europe as well. In terms of those trends and claims that you've outlined, how have they affected the advice you give to your clients on ESG matters with particular emphasis on the E in ESG? So on the strategic litigation front, unlike the sort of trends that we're seeing in UK, as you guys will be aware, the cases that have been brought against Shell in the UK, we are not yet seeing that sort of strategic litigation being brought against all majors or major MNCs in the Asian region, or at least not a significant number. But what we are seeing, though, is a increasing number of, as I mentioned, private litigation arbitration, arbitrations in relation to m contracts that deal with climate-related projects or green projects and breaches of ESG-related m representations and warranties, right? So on this score, I think it has affected the advice that we give to our clients on three fronts. The first is, of course, to be very careful of the representations and warranties that they're actually giving and not to treat that as you would a standard representation and warranty where you treat it as a checkbox exercise, reps and warranties relating to power, authority, to enter into contracts, you know, to not put ESG-related reps and warranties into that same bucket and to really think about whether or not those reps and warranties can be met, especially if they're reps and warranties as to monitoring or assurances or annual reports that have to be given in terms of their ESG metrics. So that's one. The second is that it has also affected our advice of clients in terms of what they put out to the world at large, in terms of their PR and marketing material. A fair number of actions in UK, Australia have been brought on the basis of misrepresentations that have been made to the public through advertisements or prospectuses or announcements made on exchanges. And one of the things that we have been asking clients to be careful about is to really think about whether or not those representations are true, or better yet, to steer clear away from making generic motherhood broad-based statements just for the marketing effect of it, right? So that's the second. The third way in which it has affected the way we give advice to our clients is in relation to disclosure and reporting, to make sure that clients really comply with all disclosure and reporting regimes that are applicable to them, whether it's in Singapore or elsewhere, where there may be similar disclosure and reporting requirements. I think this is especially important in light of the upcoming regulations or the regulations that are currently being debated in the European Parliament as to due diligence and accountability for supply chain climate-related risks, right? Because as I understand it, That particular piece of legislation is not limited to Europe in the sense that if you have a European company who is subject to those regulations, who is doing business in Asia, then their business activities in Asia would necessarily be captured by that regulation as well. So again, disclosure and reporting, the third piece of advice that we're giving to clients is a very important piece as well. And in terms of them coming to you, what concerns in relation to environmental related issues are you seeing coming from your clients in Singapore and more generally in Asia? I think disclosure and reporting is definitely top of their list in terms of how much they have to disclose and report. And I think that's because climate-related risk or climate-related financial disclosure and reporting is slightly different from traditional financial reporting in the sense that it is not a scorecard. It is not something that you have to show that I am creating a positive impact on the environment. Rather, it is like a report card of what you have done, what are your risks, and what are you going to do to better your position or better handle those risks. 
And clients, for some reason, can't seem to wrap their head around the concept. And they think that if I don't tell the regulators that I'm scoring 100% in every category, I've fallen short of some standard or that there'll be some sanctions. That's definitely not the case. Although I think globally, we are all moving towards various jurisdictions are moving towards a regime where there will be sanctions if you don't meet certain standards. But that, I think, is a topic for another day. So disclosure reporting is certainly a key concern. But overarching that, I think, to put it bluntly, the key question that clients have for us is, what do I do? What do I have to do? How do I take into account all these environmental-related risks and all these environmental-related issues in my day-to-day business, in my day-to-day operations? So what do I do about them? So I think for that, what we have come up with at ESO at World Partnership here in Singapore is that we often work together with ESG consultants to help clients come up with a plan that is at the same time and on the one hand compliant with the relevant or applicable regulations and laws, but on the other hand, one that is tailored to and suits their business model the best. Because obviously, depending on the business that you're running, the industry that you're in, the issues and the risks that you face and your solutions to those issues and risks would necessarily be different. I think that's really interesting, this idea of a report card almost, where you need to look at it proactively and think, what have I done? What are my risks? And the next step that you've said there, working with consultants to be really practically minded about it in terms of the steps that you put in place. Well, just to jump into that, and because we are Asians, right, so we cannot stand scoring anything less than 100 on a report card. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's good. I think if everyone aimed for a report card of 100, I think the world would probably be in a much better position. So maybe we can all borrow a little bit of that. In terms of that 100% report card, an interesting area, I think, is around decarbonisation. To what extent are you seeing your clients taking steps towards decarbonisation? I think it ties in the flows from what I said previously in relation to clients coming us to ask us, what do we do? How do we go about doing it? Decarbonization is a very big part of that. Measuring their emissions, measuring their footprints, and then coming up with a plan as to how to manage or reduce those emissions at the footprint. So decarbonization is certainly a very big part of that. There are certain difficulties, I think, with decarbonization, depending on the business that the client is in or the industry that the client is in. So for instance, if it's a financial services firm, you rent space in an office building, so you have very little control over the energy consumption because all of that is centrally controlled, then perhaps one possibility is for you to move to a greener building. But I mean, of course, that carries with it a significant amount of costs and other considerations other than your carbon footprint. Or some of the other simpler things that I've seen clients implement would be to encourage carpooling or car sharing arrangements to work, reducing the amount of international travel that they do for work. Yeah, so these are some of the simple steps that clients can take towards decarbonization. And of course, low-hanging fruit like encouraging recycling, using recyclable or sustainable office stationery, not giving out 200 name cards at an event and using QR codes instead. That's becoming very popular. Yeah, clients are certainly thinking about taking steps towards decarbonization. And those are some of the steps that I've seen clients implement. But at the same time, clients also have shared that there is often a reluctance among certain quarters in their organizations to such changes because these are all very established practices and practices that are taken for granted. And to get 
the organization's people to change their mindset and to get along with the firm's sustainability goals and sustainability journey, that often takes a lot of internal communication, a lot of education, raising awareness, and yeah, just to bring people along on their journey. And of course, I mean, with traditionally more pollutive industries like construction, infrastructure, oil and gas, energy, there is a lot more that could be done. And we see clients exploring emissions, more emissions efficient fuel or methods of construction or building more, investing more in technology to build greener buildings, that sort of thing. It's interesting to hear quite how extensive the measurements, planning and actions your clients are taking. Alongside this, to what extent are you seeing discussions around carbon credits and carbon trading? The discussion around carbon credits and carbon trading is very active in Singapore and this part of the world. Primarily, it's that discussion is driven by the fact that at some point in time, the clients realize that all the carbon mitigation efforts that they're putting in can only bring them so far. And if they want to push their sustainability goals further, then carbon credits is one thing that they can look at. That's one part of the discussion. The other part is, of course, it takes time to put into place measures to reduce your carbon emissions and your carbon footprint. And carbon credits, I think, represent a useful sort of transition tool, if you will, in that journey towards becoming more carbon efficient or even carbon neutral or or carbon zero. So there is a lot of discussion around carbon credits and carbon trading. And that's especially fueled by the fact that Singapore is home to two voluntary carbon exchanges. The first is Air Carbon, and the second is Climate Impact X. Climate Impact X is actually a carbon trading exchange that is jointly set up by Tamasic, one of Singapore's sovereign wealth funds, SGX, the Singapore Stock Exchange, Standard Chartered Bank, and DBS Bank in Singapore. So there is great force behind these two carbon exchanges in Singapore, and they're doing a lot in terms of sourcing for and collecting carbon credits making that available to the market and not just that, but also going out to the market to educate the market on the use and the benefits of the use of carbon credits along the lines that I just mentioned, especially in terms of helping organizations transition towards a greener future. So yeah, the discussion around carbon credits and carbon trading is very active in this part of the world. What is of interest though, is that one of the trends that we are keeping an eye out for, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we are guarding against, but that we are keeping an eye out for is what we call carbon nationalism. As you can imagine, in order to generate carbon credits, you need to have projects that actually do generate carbon credits. And for that, you need a certain amount of space, you need certain geographical conditions, be it a reforestation project or a project that allows you to harness solar power, wind power, We need space and you need investment for all of that. And I think given the every country's own national commitments towards their NDCs, countries, I think, are keen to, as far as possible, retain those carbon credits within their borders to allow them to meet their NDCs. And to that end, I think we have seen various jurisdictions in Southeast Asia, in particular Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia, who are in the process of discussing and formulating legislation to regulate the trade, uh, the sale and the trade of carbon credits generated from projects located within their jurisdiction. It's not to say that there is going to be a complete ban of it, but certainly there is going to be fairly tight regulations around whether or not those carbon credits can be sold internationally or to investors from other jurisdictions. In fact, personally, from my point of view, 
there was a bit of a scare in India sometime last year where for a short period of about two weeks, there were certain press releases which suggested suggested that the Indian government had completely banned the export of carbon credits. But fortunately, two weeks later, it was clarified that's not what the Indian government meant. They are actually along the same path as everyone else, which is they want to introduce regulations around the sale and the trading of carbon credits. I mean, of course, part of the discussion around carbon credits and carbon trading is also around greenwashing, especially with the recent, to put it delicately, news of what's going on with VERA and the integrity of the verification process of the carbon credits. Greenwashing by way of carbon credits is certainly something that's of concern to everyone involved in the market and who's looking to enter the market for carbon credits. I guess the third interesting part of the discussion is in relation to cross-border carbon adjustment mechanisms. And that ties in with my first point on carbon nationalism, right? So in order to balance a country's need to retain enough carbon credits for it to meet its own nationally determined contributions, and at the same time to promote the trade and the sale of carbon credits, part of the conversation would necessarily involve cross-border carbon adjustment mechanisms. But that is a conversation that will have to take place at the G2G, the government-to-government level, rather than at the business-to-business or business-to-government level. It's really early days. The conversation in that respect is in its infancy and it's really early days. And it remains to be seen what are the mechanisms that were put in place for cross-border carbon adjustments. I think there's a really interesting piece and almost a contradiction between that national focus of carbon credits or carbon nationalism, as you described it, but how that really, in a way, cuts against, in some ways, the cross-border effects of climate change. And you're trying to balance both at the same time. And of course, when we think of the cross-border effects of climate change, one of the big points I think we all think about are rising sea levels, which is, of course, particularly relevant to Singapore. Many of our listeners will be aware that approximately 30% of the island of Singapore is less than five metres above sea level. And so, Chekwi, in terms of your clients, is there an awareness, particularly among the construction sector, of the particular importance of carbon in design and building, I think particularly focused on Singapore, given its geographical location? Certainly. In fact, rising sea levels has been a matter of concern in Singapore and to the Singapore government even before climate-related issues really took off in the global conversation in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Because precisely, as you say, because of our position, rising sea levels have always been a matter of concern. And I think to that end, not just in the construction industry, but nationwide, the Singapore government has come up with what they call the Singapore Green Plan 2030, which is a nationwide push to decarbonize and to move towards a greener economy. And that cuts across not just construction, but as well as transportation, as well as the government putting into R&D for green technology, hydrogen as an alternative source of fuel, carbon capture technology, that sort of thing. So it really cuts across all sectors and it's not just uh, limited to the construction sector. In fact, I'm not sure whether you guys know this, but there's quite a famous, well, not so much of a story, uh, a tidbit, that when Lee Kuan Yew was the Prime Minister of Singapore, there were actually talks to attempt to construct a seawall all around Singapore to deal with rising sea levels. And because we are that small, that, that was actually not impossible to, to imagine. So certainly, yeah, rising sea levels is a matter of concern here in Singapore. It's interesting to hear what steps the government is taking in order to address the rising sea levels. Have you seen any of your clients start to make plans to adapt to that risk, either through the design of their construction projects or in their contracts in general? 
Yeah, I think the issue of rising sea levels at the present moment is the conversation around that is situated more at the governmental level rather than at the private organization level. I think in terms of private businesses, rising sea levels does not have quite such an immediate impact on businesses. It certainly has an impact on our lives, for sure, which is why the conversation is happening at the governmental level. But in terms of businesses or industries or markets, I don't think that has quite a direct impact. Of course, businesses are aware that it's potentially an issue, but it doesn't have quite the same direct impact, I think, on businesses here in Singapore. Yeah. I think we've got a really good sense of the practical issues that your clients are facing and how they are trying to adapt to a very changing landscape that's in front of them. Do you have for our listeners three practical tips for clients who are both seeking to protect the environment, but also trying to avoid arbitration and litigation where possible? Certainly. I think the very first tip is something that I alluded to earlier on, which is be really careful about what you put out there into the world not just in terms of your disclosure and reporting to the regulators, but also in terms of your marketing materials, right? What you represent to the public at large that you are doing or that you are going to do or that you are capable of doing. So that's that I think would be my top tip for clients seeking to avoid arbitration and litigation. The second tip is to be careful of greenwashing. Not to say that clients are intentionally or deliberately trying to greenwash, right? But a lot of times it creeps up on you unknowingly through various avenues, for example, along your supply chain, right? So you also have to be very careful of the sort of contractors, suppliers or customers that you're dealing with both up the supply chain and down the value chain as well. And in terms of that, the top tip would be do carry up the due diligence on who you're dealing with. Don't just rely on what they tell you. Try to verify that independently for yourself if you're able to. There are plenty of ESG consultants and firms out there and while operating here in Singapore, we would be able to help with that sort of due diligence and provide that assurance that you need. And along with that, monitoring is also a big part of the process. It's not just about doing your due diligence once off and leaving it for the next five years, right? It's about constantly monitoring your supply chain, renewing your due diligence year on year, if not once every couple of years, just to make sure that things are still as they are and they still meet your environmental goals and your sustainability targets. So that's the second tip, right? Due diligence and monitoring. I think the third tip is to not do too much. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you sort of have to be very aware of how much you can do and do what you can. I think when people or when organizations try to overreach, they then fall into the first two issues that I just mentioned, which is, you know, making inaccurate disclosures or misrepresentations or being accused of greenwashing, right? When you try to overreach and try to overrepresent what you can do, be really honest with yourself about what you can do. Battling climate change is a journey. It's an incremental process. It's not something where you wake up one day, flip a switch, and we're done with it, right? It's going to be a constant effort that is going to be required, right? So just be very honest about what you can do and do what you can. But of course, that's not to mean that you rest on your laurels and not try to improve year on year, set new targets, set more ambitious targets, and slowly work towards those targets year on year. Thank you very much. It's fascinating. And what leaps out at me is the importance of a heightened awareness, both internally and externally. It's been a really interesting discussion and fascinating to learn more about. 
concerns, discussions and actions being taken by your clients. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars. Thank you.